I want to speak to you this morning on this text under the title, Missing Jesus. Missing Jesus. Is it possible for Jesus to be right in front of us our whole life and to miss him? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we do ask, Lord, that as we come into your word this morning, that you would help us to see Christ as the ultimate prophet pointing to himself, that we would hear his word, his proclamation, and that we would not miss him, that we would see him and receive him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in Maryland, when the person on the Weather Channel warns us of snow, we know how to prepare, don't we? We see snow in the forecast, and we figure out what we're going to watch on Netflix. Maybe we're thinking about a soup that we want to make. I like the idea of making cream of crab soup on snow days. It's always in my head, never actually happens. (laughs) But we think about ways that we would like to prepare. Some of you go out and buy a sled for $10. Paul Newson pulls out a piece of plywood and ropes and starts making the best homemade sled you can imagine when he could really just go buy one for $10. (laughs) We go to the hardware store and we buy salt, maybe a shovel. The grocery stores are packed. You know, we got like this much snow in the forecast and everybody thinks we got to get toilet paper and water. That's all I'm concerned about right now. Food, canned goods. WBAL is out in, in front of the grocery store interviewing people. Like, we hear, we're warned of snow and we know how to prepare. Yet week after week after week, we hear warnings from the preacher, from the Word. And we go, hmm? Did somebody just say something? It's so clear. We, we hear God's warning of coming judgment. We see and hear Jesus Christ saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. A warning coming from Christ Himself to turn to Him, to turn from our sin and to trust in Him. And it's as if we say, eh. Listen, it's possible to miss it. It's possible to hear all of these warnings your entire life. It's possible to sit in church your entire life to hear the warnings coming from Christ's own mouth and an invitation to come into the kingdom of God through Him and ultimately to miss Jesus Christ. Are you missing Jesus Christ in your life. 
Now there are, as we talked about in our Sunday school class this morning, there are millions of people all around the globe who have no access to the gospel, meaning they have no access to a church that proclaims Jesus. They have no access to a Christian friend who knows something about Jesus. They have no access to Jesus. That's not us. We have access all around us. We've got, G- we, 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 we've got Jesus all in, in every form. False Jesuses, funny Jesuses, homeboy Jesuses, Jesus is coming from the gospel, from the scriptures. We have access to the name, the fame, the understanding of who Jesus is, rightly. Yet, even still, millions more will miss him. Will miss him. Oh, they are so familiar with him, but they will ultimately miss him in their life. Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? We're in a series in this uh, church in the Gospel of Luke. And what we've seen already in in Luke is that Jesus has come and He's announced His ministry through uh, John the Baptist and Jesus has been baptized. And if you remember two weeks ago, after He was baptized, He was led into the wilderness and He was immediately tempted. Jesus is the King and He's also the priest who is tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Luke is now turning the corner once again and he's showing us a different aspect of who Jesus is. This morning what we're doing is Montreal read this entire text, we're tying together a couple different major sections uh, under one theme. And that theme is this, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. A quick conversation, I want feedback. What do prophets in the Bible do? Someone said prophesy. <laughs> Speak God's word. That's a good warn of God's pending judgment. What else? Proclaiming God's will to the people. What's up? Sure, they prophets often show God's love through showing a form of repentance. What that's going to look like for for God's people. Yeah, this is all correct. Prophets are people who come with a direct word from God, uh, and and they're they're declaring God's message, some new revelation. They're declaring that to the people so that they might be warned, so that they might turn and find, as Frank said, find God's love and His grace and His forgiveness. Now, Jesus is a prophet. Now, did I say He's only a prophet? No. That's what the Muslims believe. Jesus was a prophet. They would agree with that, but they would stop right there. He was one of God's prophets. Well, we would say, he, yes, he is a prophet. That is biblical. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Now, why do I say Jesus is the ultimate prophet? On one hand, I say that because Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. But on, in another, on the other hand, I say that in terms of what Jesus is doing with his prophecy, with his prophetic ministry. Other prophets, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, other prophets, as they preach and declare, they point away from themselves to something else, to someone else. 
Jesus is the ultimate prophet in that as he declares, he doesn't point to anybody else, but Jesus points to himself. And that is what Luke is trying to show us in these three major sections of this story. Let me just walk through these three sections of the story, and then we're going to work through some application for us today. Looking at the text here in chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, that's sort of the preview for this entire section. In that preview, Luke basically says, I'm going to show you how Jesus got famous. Jesus grew in popularity. This isn't necessarily godly popularity. This is just simply popularity. This is worldly fame. Jesus got famous. His name spread across the known world. And Luke is about to show us exactly how that happened through these three sections. Section one, we see the sermon of the prophet. The sermon of the prophet. This starts in verse 16. It's now, uh, Jesus is in Nazareth. It's the Sabbath day. And as his custom, every Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue for worship. Now, Jesus is the preacher that day. And so he walks in and they actually hand him the scroll. And he reads Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, which Luke so kindly writes down for us so we don't have to look it up. He says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this passage from Luke is what we would call a messianic passage. Everybody say messianic. What I mean by that is this is a passage from the Old Testament that is uh, by the prophet Isaiah looking forward to pointing to another one that is to come. And that one that is to come is the one who's going to set to rights uh, the entire world and, uh, and is going to be the Messiah. Now this Messiah when he comes according to uh, Isaiah is to proclaim good news to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Is this talking about literal, physical poverty, physical blindness, physical oppression, physical captivity? Well, not in Isaiah. Not in particular. Now, that, that, the physical uh, does certainly frame the spiritual realities, and we're going to talk about that. But in Isaiah, Isaiah is specifically thinking of and talking about uh, the, the spiritual realities that Israel is under. While they are under physical poverty, that's not their greatest poverty. While they are physically held captive, uh, that is not their greatest captivity. And Isaiah is trying to show Israel that because they're not seeing it. They think the physical is all that matters. And he's saying the spiritual is your greatest problem. Your, your physical poverty is not your worst poverty. There is a greater poverty, and that is your spiritual bankruptcy. Your, uh, if you were to lose your sight, or I see some of you are wearing glasses, and your, your sight is, is slowly fading throughout your lifetime, or, or God forbid, you wake up one day and you're blind. I mean, that is a significant challenge. But what Isaiah is saying is that's not your biggest challenge. If you were to be uh, held captive, held hostage, you are in physical chains. That's not something any of us think is right and would desire. 
And if you found yourself in that situation, that's not your biggest problem. That's not your biggest captivity. What Isaiah is saying is that there is this Messiah coming who's going to do much more than just simply alleviate poverty here on earth. He's going to do so much more than just simply open up the eyes of the, uh, of, of the blind on earth. Uh, he's, he's going to bring true sight. He's going to bring true freedom from oppression. He's going to bring the true riches of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a sermon that Jesus is about to preach. And by the way, it's, it, it's, the, it's the shortest sermon of all time. Jesus reads his text, and then he sits down. In, in those days, you would sit to preach as opposed to stand. That was their custom, their culture. And it says all eyes were on him. Everybody was just looking at him. It's just this moment of awkward silence. What's he going to say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Go in peace. That's, that's the thrust of his sermon. This, this, is, this scripture is right now, Jesus said to them, fulfilled in your hearing. This is massive. This scripture from Isaiah 61 this freedom that this one is going to bring is pointing to me. I am the fulfillment of this passage. So, other prophets, as I have already said, they, they point away from themselves. They point to one coming. Isaiah is pointing away from himself to one coming. Jesus is the ultimate prophet in that instead of pointing to one who's coming, instead of pointing to another, he points directly to himself. He comes with the ultimate message from God, delivering the kingdom of God and the way into the kingdom, and that is through the king of the kingdom who's going to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Entrance into the kingdom comes through Jesus, and that is the message that this prophet is bringing. Are you tracking with me? Now, that's the sermon of the prophet. The second section here in this text is what we would call the, the rejection of the prophet. Now, as soon as they, the, the, the people hear Jesus' short little sermon, they marvel Luke says. But their marvel quickly fades as they think of who Jesus is. Wait a second. Wait a second. I know him. Isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. Now Jesus knows what they're thinking and he knows exactly where they're going with their thoughts. They're going to want to see him perform. Put on a little show for us. And so Jesus says, he addresses it, and he says a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. And he gives two, by the way, sermon continues. So short of sermon, I take that back. His sermon continues. He gives two different examples of how prophets work in the Old Testament. And what he says first is, think of the days of Elijah. 
In Elijah's day, <laughs> excuse me, there were many widows. But Jesus says, Elijah only went to one. Or think of Elisha. In Elisha's day, there were many lepers. But Elisha only went to one leper. And what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, you're about to ask me to perform. You're about to ask me to do something, to show you some kind of miracle. Listen, one sign is sufficient for a prophet. One leper healed. One widow's son raised from the dead. One sign is sufficient for a prophet. By the way, today when people say, oh, if Jesus were to just do this, if he were to raise somebody from the dead, then I would believe. Jesus is saying, look, a resurrection happened. That sign is sufficient. Uh, prophets never uh, performed for people. Now, their quick acceptance of Jesus turns to wrath, Luke says. And they take him to the edge of a cliff and they are going to push him off a cliff. They are going to kill him. They are angry with him. They are rejecting him, which, by the way, shows that he is a prophet because prophets are not accepted in their hometown. That's the point I'm chasing right there. And so they're about to, by the way, Casey wanted me to throw a football analogy and I told him I didn't have any. I got one. He's like a running back. Gets through the defensive line, can't even be touched. The difference is he doesn't run, he just passes through the, the defensive line. He just passes through the crowd. <laughs> Terrible analogy. <laughs> but that's something, right? That's something. Um, who's in the Super Bowl? Doesn't matter, does it? We're in the Word. So, Jesus passes through the crowd. Now track with me for a, 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 for a quick sack here. He passes through the crowd. What would we call that? A miracle. And there's, there's, there's no indication that they even get it. They want to kill him. That's just ironic, isn't it? The sermon of the prophet quickly turns to the rejection of the prophet. Now there's a third section in here which further shows that Jesus is indeed the ultimate prophet. And that is the sign of the prophet. The sign of the prophet. If you've ever been into a sports memorabilia shop, maybe you've seen like an autograph for, say, Michael Jordan on a basketball. And, and this is for sale, and you could buy this basketball with this autograph. How do you know, in a sports memorabilia shop, how do you know that that was Michael Jordan's signature? It comes with what? Anybody ever looked at anything like this? A, a, a certificate of authenticity. There's a certificate of authenticity that comes with the signature. How do we know that a prophet, or pushing forward quickly into the New Testament, an apostle, how do we know that these people are truly from God, speaking God's Word directly to His people? Well, it comes with a certificate of authenticity. What is that certificate? Anybody know? It's where Luke goes next in the text. Miracles. He immediately turns from this rejection to 
miracles. Now, Luke moves quickly through this, and we're going to move quickly with Luke. In verse 33, it's the next Sabbath day. There's a demon-possessed man there, and Jesus he, uh, casts the demon out of the, the demon-possessed man, showing that Jesus has authority over all of the spiritual and demonic world. In verse 38, he's now with Simon's mother-in-law. And she has a fever, a very high fever. Now, I don't know if you know anything about fevers, but they don't have ears. Fevers don't have an intellect. Yet Jesus speaks to the fever and says, you're done. And the fever listens. That's power. That's power. He goes on in verse 40. We see crowds come to him. Let's read verse 40. And verse 41, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. What is the purpose of miracles? Have you ever thought about that? Why miracles? What is the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Well, some would suggest miracles, the, the, the purpose of miracles is a sign that you are blessed. That God blesses those He loves. His children whom He loves. And He wants to make your life better. And a sign that you're blessed is, is miracles in your life. Expect a miracle, someone might say. Because God wants to bless those He loves. Listen, nowhere in the Bible do we see that miracles are given a, as a sign of blessing to someone. As a matter of fact, miracles in the Bible are never actually about the individual receiving the miracle. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is no indication that all of these crowds are people that are even following Jesus. He's healing people without even a, a sermon attached to it. There's no sign that they are even blessed eternally by God. So what is the purpose of miracles? Well, someone else might suggest miracles are a sign or a proof that God exists. God gives us miracles to wow the unbeliever into belief. The only problem with that is, again, nowhere in Scriptures do we see that miracles are a sign of God's existence. That's not the purpose of them. So what then in the Bible is the purpose for a miracle? Well, let's think about some miracles and some miracle workers in the Scriptures. We think of Moses uh, one of the greatest miracle workers in the Bible who parted the Red Sea and, 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 and turned water in, into blood and uh, all of these plagues. What was the purpose behind Moses having these miracles? Well, it was to prove, according to the Scriptures, to Pharaoh that God is speaking through Moses. Or, or another one. Another prophet. Elijah, who Jesus himself mentions. Why does Elijah raise the widow's son from the dead? It's to show that Elijah is indeed a prophet of God 
speaking for God. Or Elisha, why does Elisha uh, heal the leper named Naaman? Well, it's to show that Elisha is indeed a prophet of God and is speaking for God. In Acts 2.22, skipping forward, it says that Jesus of Nazareth is accredited by God to you by miracles. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus' stamp of authenticity from the Father comes by way of His miracles. What about the apostles going forward into the New Testament? One of the signs that, uh, uh, that an apostle was indeed a legit, authentic apostle speaking for God, bringing new revelation, is found in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Uh, and that says that the, the, the things that make an apostle uh, authentic are signs, wonders, and miracles. There are about 53 miracles in the Old Testament. Of course, in Jesus' ministry, there are many. Shall I use this? We, we okay? All right. Um, in Jesus' ministry, there are, there are many. In Acts, there are about 30 miracles. And we can look at all of these miracles and what we can see is the same theme over and over and over. A miracle exists as a sign. A sign for what? A sign that the, pers- the performer of the miracles is someone who uh, uh, is authentic in their word. Uh, they are speaking on behalf of God. Why does Jesus then perform miracles? It is his authentication. It is God the Father saying, this one speaks directly for me. The point of my sermon is simply this. Since Jesus is the ultimate prophet who points to himself, let us not miss him. Since Jesus is the ultimate prophet pointing to himself, let us not miss him. I'm going to fix this thing before this day's over. Usually I've got this a little more down pat. All right, walk with me a little bit through, through some of this. How might we miss Jesus? How might we miss him? We might miss Jesus in the same three ways that we see these characters in these stories missing Jesus. How might we miss him? Number one, we miss Jesus because he's familiar. We can miss Jesus because he's familiar. I have fallen down the stairs three times in my life. And all three times, I've fallen down my own stairs. I'm not going to fall down your stairs. I'm not going to fall down the stairs out here. I fall down my stairs. Why is that? Listen, I am confident on my stairs. I know my stairs. And they even have a little twist to them. And I know exactly where to step. And I can just, I can fly down the stairs. Jess thinks I fall down the stairs every day. That's just me running down the stairs. I fly downstairs. And that's exactly why I fall downstairs. Because I am so familiar with them. And one little change 
You know, a slippery sock, perhaps. Add something new. A toy that should not be on the fourth stair can cause me to fall. You know, the funny thing about familiarity, familiarity is that often familiarity causes us to mess up. I've heard most accidents happen within two miles of somebody's home. People slip on their own kitchen floor because they didn't see a puddle of water on the floor. Something about familiarity causes us to miss something. We, we, because of familiarity, we don't examine. We take things for granted. We're not as careful as we otherwise would be on somebody else's stairs. Now, when I look at Jesus' homies here in the text, a.k.a. the people from his hometown, all right, little literal definition there, they miss him because they're familiar with him. Oh, they're interested at first, but then they start thinking, wait a second, we know him. We know this, we know this young guy. We saw him grow up. He went to school with my kids. He was shooting dreidel on the corner when he was a teenager. We know, we know this kid. This is Joseph's son. And, and their, their interest immediately turns to wrath. Listen, we as people can miss Jesus because we are so familiar with Him. Familiarity risks taking Jesus for granted. For example, I had a neighbor uh, on, on my block for years, and I was so familiar with him. I, I walk my same path every day down the sidewalk. He's always sitting out on his stoop having a cigarette, and we always have the same conversation about the weather. If the weather's nice, we talk about how nice it is. If it's nasty, we talk about how nasty it is. It's all we ever talked about for years, and I liked him. He was like a really nice guy. I invited him to church a couple times, and then he died. And when he died, it, it hit me. I didn't ever really know this guy. As a matter of fact, I can't even remember his name. I don't know if he had children. I remember after he died and, and I was seeing some things about his funeral coming up, I, I felt this deep sense in my soul that I just missed this guy. Listen, you can be so familiar with Jesus and not know him. You can be so familiar with him and completely miss him. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus, I grew up, I grew up in the church. Yeah. I know Jesus. I went to Sunday school growing up. I went to a Christian school at one point. I took classes on this stuff. I know the Bible back and forth. I could quote to you all uh, 93 books of the Bible. <laughs> I'm glad you guys left. <laughs> I know this stuff. I know, oh yeah, 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 he died for my sins. Yep. 
you stand before Jesus, uh, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? He died for my sins. I believe, in, I believe in him. I know him. I know him. You know him because he's familiar. But you don't know him. How do you know if you don't know him? Well, you haven't become like him. Listen, the Bible says if we know Jesus, we become like him. The Bible says if we stand face to face with Jesus and we declare Him and we behold His glory, the longer we do so, the more we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. If you are not looking more and more like Jesus in your life, friends, you don't know Him. You're just familiar with Him. Listen, familiarity is going to damn many, many souls to hell. You will be familiar with him for all of eternity in hell. Don't just be familiar with Jesus. Know him. Know him. Additionally, familiarity risks mistaking mere traditions for a real relationship. Meaning like you, you might know all of the Christian traditions. You might have a tradition of Bible study in your home. You might have a tradition of reading Luke 2 on Christmas morning before you open presents. You might have a weekly tradition of going to church and Bible study. You might know how to worship. You know, Reformed churches... They know their traditions. They know their traditions of taking notes and listening to every word and, mm-hmm, and singing with robusto, a solemn hymn. Traditional Baptist churches, they know when, how, and where to shout. Pentecostal churches know exactly when the Holy Spirit is coming into the room. And when it's time to catch the Spirit, based on the (laughs) B-flat. Listen, I don't care what tradition you come from. You might know your tradition, but not know Jesus. You might know exactly how we do it in X, Y, and Z church, but you don't know Jesus. And we mistake all of our familiarity with how we do things for a real relationship. Listen, don't miss Jesus simply because you're familiar with our traditions. A second reason we might miss Jesus is because we make Him into a mere Miracle worker. So his, 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 his homeboys, the, the, the guys he grew up with, the older folks in the neighborhood that he grew up around, they missed him because they were familiar with him. But it seems like there's many others, the crowds, the, those who just, they, they, they find him to be such an enthralling figure. They are crowding around him. They miss him because they turn him into a mere miracle worker. As a matter of fact, toward the end of the text, Jesus has to pull away from them. And he says, I've got to keep going on to do what I was 
sent to do, to do what I came here for. He calls it His purpose in verse 43, and that is to preach the Gospel. But they're missing it because they want Him to heal them. They're coming with their sick and He's laying hands on them and healing them and the demons are coming out. But that is the end for so many people. They turn Jesus into a mere miracle worker. And they completely misunderstand the point of the miracles. Listen, misunderstanding something can destroy you. Can I give you an example? Jaden, you mind if I use an, use an example, baby? So Jaden, last year in seventh grade, I told, her, I, I told her about a year ago I was going to use this as an illustration in one of my sermons, so I've given her a heads up. All right. About a year ago, Jaden was in seventh grade, and uh, she was uh, having her doctor's visit for school, and she had to fill out some confidential forms. And in seventh grade, they don't let your parents see these forms. This is just between her and the doctor. And so she fills out these forms. Now, one of the questions on the form was, have you ever been in a car while someone was drinking or doing drugs? And she wrote, yes. Doctor looks at this and requests a one-on-one with Jaden. Asks her some questions. Can we talk about this? Sure. Um, so you've been in a car and seen someone use drugs and alcohol? Uh Uh-huh. Was this your parents? Oh, no. I thought it meant like, have I ever been in the car and looked out the window and saw somebody using drugs and alcohol? Like, I see that all the time. (laughs) What she's telling me is I'm like, Jaden, you almost got us locked up. <laughs> Do you understand what you almost did? Listen, if you misunderstand something, you can bring a whole lot of destruction into your life or into someone else's life that you love. All right? Here's my concern with the text and with many of us. If we misunderstand the point of miracles here, we could bring a whole lot of destruction into our life and into the lives of other people. Miracles are not just simply given as a sign that God is uh, showing His favor upon you. It's not just simply a, a promise to all of, his, uh, all of his, his children. Miracles was a specific sign to authenticate the prophet and the apostle who was bringing forth the revelation of God. That was the point. That was the point. But if we miss that, and this is the problem with the prosperity gospel across the United States and into other countries and the Word of Faith movement. If we miss it, we are uh, uh, making a grave error that is going to bring destruction into our spiritual lives. In which we turn God into merely our genie. Uh, I was having a conversation with Tim Carey this week. And Tim uh, was talking about how uh, important it is in our evangelism to talk about suffering. And to not in our evangelism give any false claims. Such as, if you come to Jesus Christ, He's going to make your life better. How many Christians have, you know, with a good heart in a sense, 
given a false claim in their evangelism and said, look, Jesus is really going to hook you up. He's going to make your life better. Well, if that is the reason that people come to Christ, are they really coming to Christ? The answer is no. What they want is what they want. Whether I'm saved or not saved, I want the same thing, and that is health, wealth, and prosperity in my life. Jesus is now given to me as a new means through which I get what I want. But Jesus is not who I want. And as a matter of fact, this is why so many churches are crumbling. It's because people have led with this false claim. People have come to Jesus to get hooked up. And what happens is this. Sickness still comes into your life. Your body still breaks down and falls apart. You're not seeing all of these miracles that you were promised to see. And you know what you do? You throw it all out and say, what I want hasn't changed, but the means of getting what I want has now been abandoned. And Jesus has not helped me. Listen, there are many professing Christians across our city in your family, and of course across our country and across our world, that will miss Jesus because they misunderstand this point. Jesus is not our means. Jesus is the end goal. He is the one that we want. Oh, take my eyesight. Take my arms. Take my legs. Take my life. What I want is Jesus. That is the cry of the believer. He is the goal. He is the treasure. He is what we are after. Amen? Thirdly, we miss Him because for some, He is horrifying. We miss Him because He is horrifying. Now, I'm talking about three different groups of people here. Some miss Him because He's just so familiar and they think they know Him, but they don't. Others miss him because they're after the goods of the world, much like the prodigal son, say, who is coming after not the father, but the father's goods. Are you tracking with me on that story? And he takes the father's goods and he spends it on, be on behalf of himself on his own pleasures, on his own sinful delight. But others just simply miss Jesus because they're afraid of him. I can't get near him. I know who I am. I got to get myself together first before I come to Jesus. I've got to drop this addiction. I've got to drop this habit before I come to Jesus. I've got to clean myself up before I come to Jesus. And they will miss him. They never come to Jesus because they're afraid of him. Listen, uh, let's, let's actually take this prodigal son story and turn it a little bit. Imagine that you are the prodigal child. You've taken your father's goods. You're squandering it on yourself. You're having these big parties. You have all these people over. You're at a hotel room down in the Inner Harbor. And you got like, everybody's like drunk and, and, and sex all over the place and snorting coke. And it's just a good time. And then at 2 a.m. in the middle of the party, your father walks in the room. You don't want to see your father in the room. 
Listen, sinners, delighting in their sin, despise authority. They despise authority. Listen, we can critique authority. Case in point, we can critique police brutality. We can critique authority figures and call them out for using their authority in perverse ways. But as Christians, we don't despise authority. Sinners enjoying their sin despise authority. Who do I see in the text? They know who Jesus is. They rightly profess who Jesus is. Who am I talking about? Anybody? The demons. Isn't this ironic? His own people don't get him. The demons know who he is. They call him the Holy One of God. In verse 41, they call him the Son of God. And Luke even says they knew that he was the Christ. But they hate him. They despise him. He is not to them the precious One of God. They don't understand the work of redemption. They don't understand the work of the cross. They want to destroy Jesus. Listen, friends, we are sinners. But Christ has come to die for us. He came to give His life for us. That's why, for those of you who are afraid of coming to God, you're afraid of Jesus, come to Him freely. Run to Him with your addictions. Run to Him with your mess. Run to Him with all of the crap in your life. Because what you're finding is open arms of a Savior in Christ. And He will transform you and begin working in your life and begin to make you into His own likeness. For us as sinners, Christ is good He's right. He's beautiful. He's pure. He's grace. He's love. But to the demons, they are afraid of Him. And they flee. This is like the opposite of most horror movies today. Demons don't scare Jesus. Jesus scares the demons. Who did Jesus come for? As Jesus is proclaiming his prophetic message, he declares something. I did not come for those who think they have it all together. I did not come for those who think they have so much spiritual wealth and they're so filled with themselves. I came, he says, for the spiritually broken. I came for those who know that your spiritual bank account is empty. He doesn't come for those who are just enjoying their freedom. He comes for those who realize that they are in chains to sin. He comes for those who realize that that they are bound to their sinful, fleshly passions. Jesus doesn't come to those who do not realize that they are blind, who think they see clearly in this world. Jesus comes to those who know that they are blind, groping in the darkness. And for this reason, Isaiah says that this one that's coming is good news. He's good news, not for the demons, not for those who are just familiar, not for those who are just looking to get at stuff in this world. He's good news for the spiritually broken, the, the, the bankrupt. He's good news 
for the poor. He's good news for those who are blind. He's good news for those who are oppressed by sin and in chains to their flesh. Jesus comes as good news. What does it look like for us? We wake up and we realize we are blind, broken, oppressed, broke, and hurting. We wake up one morning and we realize that we are eating with the swine. We realize that we have squandered the Father's goods and we're looking at this pig food and it looks pretty good right now and we think to ourselves, I have fallen pretty far. To believe that I'm better off munching with the pigs instead of under the authority of my Father. I have fallen pretty far. It's this moment when God opens our heart to the ugliness of our sin to the ugliness of following after the passions of our flesh. He opens our heart. He gives us eyes to see. And what do we do? We turn and we go back home. I love the story of the prodigal son. I love how the father, when he sees the son far off in the distance, what does he do? He hikes up his robe and he begins to run, which would have been a shameful thing for a man in that culture to do. And he runs to his prodigal son and he embraces him and he welcomes him home and he slaughters the fatted calf and he throws a big celebration for a prodigal has come home. I wonder this morning if you are coming home to God in Christ. As you have encountered Jesus' own proclamation of his identity, as you have heard the Jesus Christ's good news for you, repent, turn to Him, trust in Him, cling to Him, run to Him. For us as a church, what does this mean corporately? Jesus says, I must go preach this good news for this reason I was sent. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' parting words with His church are sending words, and He says, go and preach the gospel. Point others, point the lost, the hurting, the broken, the down and out, the poor, those in despair, those in addiction. Point them to the ultimate prophet who's pointing at himself. And we become, as it were, a colony of heaven here on earth, proclaiming who Jesus is, the light of Baltimore City. Salt of Baltimore City so that many more in Baltimore City might know this Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Luke writing for us and preserving these stories of Jesus so that we might know him and through him so that we might know you. God, I pray that we would be a people who do not miss Jesus but that even now you would reawaken faith within us. Stir in us genuine and true emotions for Christ. A real relationship. And I pray that we would cling to him as our treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.